The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today we're going to talk about revenge porn. And I think I told you I was reading this fascinating article by a professor uh, from the University of Miami and. Florida, Mary Ann Franks, and she wrote an article that appeared in the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California. And the title was, Does Does the California Revenge Porn Law Pass Muster? And I thought, how interesting that, um, you know, we've had to come up with all these new laws, and especially this with revenge porn. And I thought, since we're sitting on the campus of the University of California, this is something that we really should talk about because we've heard of revenge porn cases right here in our own county. So let me tell you a little bit about this wonderful professor, Marianne Franks. She's an associate professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law in Coral Gables, Florida where she teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and family law. She's also the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging online harassment and abuse. And in that capacity, she's worked with legislators in 16 states to draft legislation against the non-consensual distribution of sexually explicit images. And now she's working with our own uh, California Congresswoman Jackie Spear uh, on federal legislation, and we've actually had Jackie on our on our show, and I've worked with her in in the California legislature. She was a very strong privacy advocate. After receiving her JD from Harvard Law School in 2007. Marianne Franks became a Bigelow Fellow and a lecturer in the law at the University of Chicago School of Law. And before law school, Professor Franks received her doctorate in 2004 and her master's degree in 2001 from Oxford University, where she studied on a Rhodes Scholarship. And before entering legal academia, Professor Franks was a lecturer at Harvard University teaching social theory, philosophy, and literature. And she is a frequent legal commentator in the media on issues of her her specialties, criminal law, family law, and cyber law. And she's published editorials in The Guardian, The Independent, and the the New York Daily News. And, of course, I saw her in The Daily Journal. And her media appearance include The Today Show, HuffPost Live, and NPR, 
And she's been quoted in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, and many, many more. So we're really thrilled that she's with us all the way from Florida, the other, the other coast. But you could find out more about her not only at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you'll see her face uh, with her picture, a beautiful woman, and you'll see more about her uh, background, and you'll link to her cyber civilrights.org website there, and you can also go to her website. So it's KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and cybercivilrights.org. And we're just so thrilled to have you on, Marianne. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you so much. So um, there's we recently, in California, we kind of lead the country on a lot of privacy legislation. In October 2013, we actually created our own California law, right? I don't know if we were we the first state to criminalize revenge porn. California was the first state to criminalize revenge porn as it's sort of popularly known now. Um, there are three states that had passed laws prior to 2013 that addressed privacy concerns that could, in theory, be applied to revenge porn. But the California law was the first one that passed in the wake of this newfound media consciousness of revenge porn. So let's talk about what you mean by revenge porn so everybody knows what we're talking about. Sure. So revenge porn is a little bit of a misnomer. It's the popular term that's used for non-consensual disclosure of sexually explicit images. And the term revenge porn suggests that the reason for disclosing these images is, you know, some form of revenge or resentment for someone exiting a romantic relationship or to get back at someone. And that certainly is the case in, in many of the, the incidents of revenge porn. But it has also been used to humiliate people um, after sexual assault. It's sometimes used by website owners um, as a way of gaining notoriety online or gaining um, monetary gains, actually, from websites that specialize in non-consensual images. So it isn't always a personal relationship between the person disclosing and the person whose picture it is. Sometimes the people who are publicly uh, advocating or disseminating this information are doing it for reasons of notoriety or monetary gain or entertainment. Right, and so let's talk about the kinds of harm that really this this uh, these types of um, assaults, I call them, <laughs> what kind of harm does this really cause? Typically what victims of this conduct will experience um, is at a minimum they will experience losses of employment and educational opportunities. Very often when these pictures become uh, public, the person in question will lose their job they'll, or they'll be kicked out of school or they'll feel that they have to resign from um, a position because of all the publicity. Um, what also tends to happen for female victims especially, and that so far has been the majority of victims, is that they experience stalking and harassment and threats from people who have seen the images or now writing them or propositioning them, calling them, um, sending them Facebook messages, because very often... When these pictures get disclosed, they get disclosed along with personal information, such as Facebook profile information or even home addresses. So a lot of the people who experience this are experiencing threats and, and sexual propositions. A lot of victims struggle with depression, um, suicidal thoughts, 
And as a general matter, many of the victims and people who are afraid of becoming victims um, also withdraw from many of the activities that they would otherwise participate in, including um, having an active online presence, but also engaging in normal work and school activities for fear that this kind of attention will be brought to them. Right, right. Some people think that this is just like a, a civil assault, and how do you see it as a criminal assault? I think that's a very deep question on some level because we really have to ask ourselves what kinds of things should we criminalize? What types of behaviors do we consider so serious that not only should there be a possibility of individual, possibly monetary recovery, but also that um, something so serious that the perpetrator should actually have experienced a loss of liberty? And if we think about it, there are any number of things that we criminalize that perhaps we shouldn't. I mean, if we think about petty theft, if we think about certain forms of drug possession, people can have um, various views about whether or not these are all types of conduct that are serious enough to put someone in prison. I think a better or one of the ways we can ask ourselves what the line between civil and criminal should be is just how serious we think the harm is and whether we think there are any plausible, pragmatic um, means of deterrence other than criminalization. And if we think about it this way, if we think about the devastating impact this has on victims and how instantaneous it is, that is to say it's the kind of thing that not only can happen in a moment, but also in many cases cannot be undone. So as opposed to, let's say, theft, you can't actually ever compensate someone who has been exposed in this way. Um, given that particular nature of the harm and given how much social impact this has and how perpetrators do not seem to be afraid of getting sued over the, this type of conduct, it seems to me uh, to be a very good candidate for criminalization. Yes, and the fact that once something is on the Internet, it's never really going to go away, right? I mean, it can never totally be deleted. It can be replicated. It can be shared. It can be sold. It can be done all sorts of ways. And then, you know, we've heard of even people committing suicide as a result of, of this kind of uh, revenge porn. So I, I know that there are times that people will blame the victim of this conduct. Well, she she shouldn't have let him take a picture or, you know, they they shouldn't have been engaging in that or whatever. So what do you think about that with blaming the victim rather than blaming the perpetrator? I think most of the time it's it's not only bizarre, but it's also extremely upsetting because of the kinds of mindset, uh, the type of mindset it really reveals about sex and about women and sex especially. When you hear these things, I think a lot of women at least will recognize this as the same thing that we say about rape and the same thing we say about sexual harassment, that on some level we just really want the women to be responsible for what happens to them because it makes us feel better. Um, about not, we don't have to feel guilty about the, the, the types of situations that um, these women are, are in. And I think we have some pretty backward notions of sex that for some reason people think that it's appropriate to judge and to blame people for engaging in consensual sexual activity. There's something about that that seems to strike people as immoral, uh, especially if it's women who are doing it, which is very strange because if you think about what our moral compass should be, we should be much more concerned about non-consensual sexual activity than we should about consensual activity, which is frankly um, not anybody's business as long as it's between adults and um, everybody is consenting. So it's, it's 
kind of an old story about blaming women for sexual choices, and it may be a slightly new story in that the fact that this has become monetized and so commonplace means a lot of people are viewing this material, and a lot of people don't want to feel guilty about the fact that they have either viewed this material or they would like to view this material. Exactly. And it isn't just women. Sometimes it's men. I mean, we've had this happen with gay men who've, uh, you know, pictures have been disclosed and one guy jumped off a bridge. And then look at the case of Anthony Weiner, right? I mean, um, his picture was disclosed as well, right? That's right. You do have male victims there. In fact, recently there have been several. It tends to happen, at least so far, the primary... Primarily, the male victims we've seen have been people who have been um, in politics on some level, and you can see how, how the consequences can be pretty severe for men as well. There is There does seem to be some difference between the types of consequences that men face generally and that women face. Anthony Weiner seems to have suffered mostly in terms of embarrassment. Right, um, right. As far as I know, he was never threatened with sexual violence. It wasn't that, that wasn't exactly his experience, but certainly there's a cost to everybody, male or female, who becomes a victim of this. Exactly. So why do some people object to the laws against non-consensual pornography? It depends on who we're talking about. I think on, on one level, you've got a group of people groups of people who object to laws because, as I alluded to before, they they think that women should be punished for engaging in sexy pictures or they enjoy the possibility of getting to see these pictures. So you have, a, you know, the people who are themselves engaging in this behavior or um, running websites based on these types of images or who tend to frequent these websites, they're all opposed to criminalization because this is a, a product in some ways that they enjoy. Um, but then you have the more, uh, the people who are acting, I think, and not so much in that bad mindset of just wanting this to be acceptable, but who are genuinely concerned about overreach, uh, First Amendment issues, concerns about laws being too broad, and those are legitimate concerns, at least in the abstract. What we hope is that people will understand that free speech is not a limitless, um, uh, it's not a blank check for people to do or say anything, and that's been true pretty much always. And yeah. so if, we can un- if we can understand that privacy has always been a value that's been protected by our society, that we need to recognize that sexual privacy is at least as important. Right. We're speaking with Marianne Franks, and her name is similar to mine. I, I often get called Mary, and I almost many times get called Franks, and she gets called Frank. You know, people drop the S. So anyway, uh, but she is different from me. She lives on the other coast. She's a lawyer, and she's an associate professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law, where she teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and family law. And she also is the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, which if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about that, which is a wonderful organization, it's cybercivilrights.org. Let me ask you, Marianne, so let's talk a little bit about the legal landscape across the country and what does it look like now uh, for this issue? I know um, you had said in your article that there were some challenges with the California law that needed to be cleaned up. Let's, Let's talk a little bit about that and what what um, what new legislation is introduced and what's really going on with the whole legislative uh, realm? Well, there's a lot of good news and there's some bad news. The good news is that states are paying attention to this issue. Um, since 
California passed its law, there have been, I think, today nine other states since then for a total of 13 states that have some law, some criminal law that addresses this issue. So that's a lot that's happened in a very short amount of time. The bad news is that not all of these laws have been good. And that is to say there are, there are problems with these laws, either in terms of them being underprotective, that is that they don't really protect victims the way they should, and there's been the opposite problem of them being overprotective, uh, criminalizing forms of expression and speech, at least potentially, that could chill a lot of legitimate expression. So it's been difficult to find good or, or to see lots of good laws being passed. It's a little bit of a, of a mishmash of good and bad elements. So what are some of the key elements that, that you think should be in the law? And um, you could talk, I guess, if you want to talk, since we're an, on the campus of the University of California, maybe you could talk a little bit about the California law, because I know you were involved in that and you're involved in, in uh, knowing about the new legislation that's proposed. So um, let's talk about what key things should be in the law and what things maybe shouldn't be in the law. Yes, so the, the basic elements of the law should be the non-consensual disclosure of someone's sexually explicit images. Um, that's the basic idea. Now, it's obviously a little more complicated than that because one of the first things people ask is, well, what if you didn't know that the image in question uh, was non-consensual as opposed to, um, let's say, a commercial pornographic image? Right. So the way that we, we suggested legislators uh, think about this is to talk about intentional disclosures which means, you know, not accidentally hitting a button uh, or making some kind of mistake, but an intentional disclosure defined usually as something like forwarding or uploading or transferring. Um, sexually explicit images also clearly defined so that we're not talking about people who are having a bad hair day or are in a bikini or something along those lines, but really sexually explicit images, and that the person who's disclosing either knows or should have known that the image was non-consensual. And those are the basic elements that we suggest um, a good law should have. Right. And so what are some of the challenges that you found, like with the California law? Well, the California law, you know, it was new. And back in October, it was it was definitely trying to deal with a phenomenon that was maybe not that well understood. And so the intentions were good. The, the wording was not as good as it could have been, although they've made significant revisions since then, the original version did not cover selfies or so-called selfies. That is, if the person had taken the image of him or herself and she'd given that to someone, she wouldn't be protected by the law. And um, fortunately, the advisors and drafters who worked on the law saw that that was the wrong thing to, to do. We shouldn't make a distinction between people who took images themselves or someone else took a picture of them. So they have fixed that, which I think is a very good thing. But the other big challenge has been, and California is kind of stuck in this challenge too, um, has been some misguided attempts to put intent requirements into these laws. And by intent requirements, I really mean motive requirements, because uh, the intent part is the non-consensual disclosure part. What a lot of laws, including California's new law, try to impose are intent-to-harm requirements. Oh. So that, that is to say, it's not enough that you acted without someone's consent. You have to have acted with a kind of malicious purpose, which right. we really strongly feel is, is unnecessary in many ways, um, actually pretty harmful as a requirement. Mm, yeah, yeah. Have to have the mens rea, huh? <laughs> the specific well, the mens rea, you know, for, for what we're arguing is that the mens rea is, I know this image is 
non-consensual. I know she does not want this image published. So that's the mens rea that we require. Right. What these laws are doing instead of just merely um, requiring that, which is perfectly, which is exactly what we do need to require. They want to go one step farther and say, in addition to knowing that it's non-consensual, you have to have done this with the intent to hurt this person. Which automatically puts certain people out of any possibility of liability, including people who are publishing these pictures for the purposes of entertainment. Right, right. To us, to be wrong. Right, right. And yeah, that there that there isn't there should be no need to specifically want to harm someone or embarrass someone. If you're trying to make money on it, then then that wouldn't be your intent, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what is the best way to respond to violations of sexual privacy, legal, social, or technological? What do, you, what do you think we really need to do? I mean, people are going to be doing this kind of stuff. What, what do you think is the best way that we can deal with that besides this law? Well, it's, it's always going to be a challenge to address these issues because, as you know, the law is somewhat of a blunt instrument, and we resort to the law when social norms have failed in some sense. So what, we're, what we can hope for at this point, given that this has become a problem that the law now has to catch up to, we first want to have laws in place that can kind of set the tone for social norms that, like domestic violence, like sexual assault, law can actually help us see how wrong these things are as opposed to treating them as trivial or natural in some way. So that can kind of be a communication to society as a whole that these things are wrong. But then that needs to make social norms shift in a way that we start condemning this behavior, not just legally, not just in terms of actually reporting to police and getting prosecutors to take these cases, but also that if people are aware that they are on a revenge porn site, they need to be aware that they are doing something terrible. There needs to be a, a social backlash against this type of very abusive behavior. And we also need all these great minds in tech to start working with us to figure out how we can make sure that tech is not used to destroy people, that it, that it remains something, that tech remains something that offers great potential or freedom as opposed to the opposite. Yeah, and I would think that in our in our grade schools, our high schools, and our colleges, we need to be teaching this kind of moral behavior. Isn't it kind of a moral a- attitude as well? It's like you wouldn't do this to hurt someone. It's an, an unethical thing to do. I mean, it's just about people not caring about other people's feelings or their hurt. I mean, we're, I, I think the fact that we're seeing people committing suicide or we're seeing the devastation by people when sometimes you have to have real life stories for people to come in and say what happened to them for like we do with bullying. Bullying now is being taught in the schools, right? Maybe we need That's to right. do that. Uh, this is a, a form of bullying as well. I think part of the confusion that we have socially about this phenomenon called bullying, which revenge porn is sometimes seen as as part of that is that we're not always clear about what it is we're upset about, and we're not always making proper distinctions or clear distinctions between merely offensive behavior and behavior that is seriously malicious and wrong. And I think that that doesn't help in some respect to to have words or, or conversations about the unkind things that people do to each other without making some pretty clear distinctions about bad versus terrible. Um, yeah. So when we're talking about bullying, you know, to make sure that we should really be talking about it in terms of the, the words that we have for these types of actions. We have words like harassment and assault. And if that's what teenagers are doing to each other, we shouldn't call it something else. We should call it that. And if it's 
revenge porn, then we should call it invasions of sexual privacy or sexual abuse, which it really is. And if we're expecting to teach kids or adults or anybody, for that matter, about respecting bodily integrity, which everybody should care about, this has got to be a piece of that. You cannot use somebody sexually without their consent under no circumstances. That simply is unacceptable. And that is something that everybody should be taught and everybody should know. And it's frightening that there's any resistance to that idea. Exactly. So what I meant was bullying now is being taught in the schools. So maybe revenge porn should be taught in the schools. That's what I meant. Not right. not to call it the same, but but we have now seen that as something. I mean, obviously, it's there's you know we have laws on that, and we have really taken in initiatives in the schools. And I don't know if they've done that to the extent like they've done bullying, where they're really having people come in and they're training them on that, it seems to me that they should be training them on this issue as well. It, I think you're right that we should definitely be having this conversation as early as possible, especially if we are having, there are some very well thought out programs and educational pro, educational programs about the dangers and the, the conduct that we should be thinking about. The problem has been is that we've actually seen some schools take on the issue of what's usually called sexting in that context. And very often, they're reinforcing exactly the opposite message of what they should be reinforcing. Basically, these programs tend to tell girls, don't send these pictures to anybody because this is what's going to happen to you, mm. as opposed to saying to boys and, and everybody, right. you, cannot, you know, you cannot disclose these pictures. You need to learn to respect people's privacy and trust. Exactly. So I, I'm all for having these educational programs and conversations. I just hope that we send the right messages with them. Right, right, and the legality of it, and and the and the assault, and and what it really does to people. So right. <clears throat> let's just—we have just a couple minutes left. Let's just tell a little bit about your cy- cyber civil rights initiative, so that people can um, go ahead and and maybe join and be part of it. We would love for more people to join and be part of it. It is essentially uh, the term means cyber civil rights. We want people to think about how, at various stages in our history, there were times when um, social abuses, individual abuses, kept whole groups of people from participating in society to their fullest because they were scared of the abuse or they were being harassed, they were being discriminated against, and that we're unfortunately witnessing that online in a very serious way. There are uh, not just women, there are minorities too, there, uh, there are sexual minorities who are being made to feel as though they cannot take the same advantages of online culture as everybody else because of the abuse and discrimination that they may experience. And that means that we're losing those people's voices, and that's a devastating thing for equality, and it's a devastating thing for diversity. And so we're trying to promote this message of we need a cyber-civil rights movement, not just on the revenge porn issue, but on any number of issues having to do with race and sex and class, and that we really want to work together for online spaces and communities that are truly healthy and diverse and vibrant. Great. So um, what can people do? If, like what are some of our students on the campus and our business people who are driving by? What can they do? I would encourage all of them to visit the Cyber Civil Rights website. That's cybercivilrights.org and read about the mission, read about our projects, and sign up to be a volunteer if, if you are interested. Well, that is terrific, and we look forward to hearing more about all the great work that you're doing, and we'll visit it and just say that, cybercivilrights.org. And thank you so much, uh, Professor Mary Ann Franks, 
from the University of California, not California, come out here, (laughs) the University (laughs) of Miami and Coral Gables. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will have you back again. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI. 88.9 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, and listen to archived interviews. And we're just thrilled to have you write us emails about what's important to you in this information age. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.